This is episode 215 with running's most acclaimed author, a man whose marathon PR is a frustrating 12 seconds faster than mine, and a COVID long hauler, Mr. Matt Fitzgerald. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and this episode features one of my favorite people in all of endurance running, an author who's written more than two dozen books and someone who absolutely loves running. Matt Fitzgerald has written some of the most captivating books in the running space, like How Bad Do You Want It?, Brain Training, The Endurance Diet, Running the Dream, and many others. Strength Running's first live show featured Matt Fitzgerald, which you can listen to in episode 96. And this conversation focuses on how to make a comeback, whether from injury, a life setback, or just a long time away from running. You'll learn the three-step process to become an ultra-realist and take control of your running future. But before we start, I have a big announcement. For the first time ever, I'm exploring whether to host an in-person retreat in 2022 strength running style. I've created a survey that won't take more than two or three minutes of your time at strengthrunning.com slash retreat. Please let me know your thoughts, your preferences, and let's make this an amazing experience. The survey link is strengthrunning.com slash retreat. And if you want even more resources to help your running, don't miss Strength Running's YouTube channel at youtube.com slash strengthrunning and our home base, strengthrunning.com. Since 2010, we've helped tens of thousands of runners all around the world level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award-winning blog, our free email courses on topics from strength to injury prevention, and the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you achieve your wildest ambitions as a runner. All right, our sponsor is Elemental Labs for this episode, and they want to gift you a free sample pack of high-sodium electrolytes for your big training goals this fall. Just pay five bucks for shipping here in the United States. Go to drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning, and you can sign up there for a free sample pack. It has four flavors and eight individual packets to help you optimize your hydration. That's drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning for your free sample pack. We're also sponsored by Inside Tracker. They help you analyze your body's biomarker data to give you a clear picture of what's going on inside you and then offer science-backed recommendations to improve any metrics that are outside of your unique optimal zones. For a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store at insidetracker.com/strengthrunning. Our guest today is none other then 239 marathoner, acclaimed author, triathlete, nutritionist, running coach, and overall hilarious human being, Mr. Matt Fitzgerald. I first met Matt back in 2014 when I bugged him to join me for coffee in Boulder. And since then, we've kept in touch, and just this past August, both of us participated in the Endeavor Run retreat as coaches. Matt is currently working through being a COVID long hauler. He first got coronavirus in March of 2020, but he got healthy. And then all of a sudden, about six months later, he started getting those long haul symptoms. He's still mostly unable to run, which makes this conversation especially pertinent to him. One of his latest books is The Comeback Quotient, and he's using his own book to help guide his own comeback. 
In this conversation, we'll be talking about the three-step process for recognizing reality, digging yourself out of any hole that you might find yourself in, and getting back on track. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Matt Fitzgerald. All right. Hey, Matt, it's great to hang out with you again. Great to hang out with you. Uh, I can't smell you from this distance as I could in Boulder, but still, it's still nice. <laughs> well, that's right. We were at the Endeavor Run camp in Boulder a little over a month ago, which was just fantastic. We laughed. We, I think, helped quite a few runners that weekend, and we even shared a bunk bed one night. We had a great time, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, it, was, it must be repeated at some point somewhere. <laughs> I never thought you'd say that, but here we are. <laughs> well... You know, a lot of our listeners know that that you got COVID back in, I think it was March of 2020. And, you know, you've been dealing with some long COVID symptoms for quite a while now. And, you know, I wanted this conversation to be about comebacks and the grit or mental toughness or mental fitness that's needed for them. And I also recognize that this whole topic is something that it, it is not something that you're just writing about, Matt. It's something that you are living right now. So, you know, are are you using the knowledge you've gained in writing the book, you know, the comeback quotient to help your own comeback right now? I am. Um, yeah, it's funny. Uh, you know, well, not funny, not haha funny. Um, yeah, uh, on October 6th, um, it'll be the one year anniversary of like when I first noticed something was wrong. Um, and just to back up, I got COVID, was sick for a month, recovered, was healthy for six months. And then started to slide backward, which I, I thought was very weird at the time. But apparently, that's not unusual for you know COVID long haulers to recover and then go backward. So it, it's, it's coming up in a year that I've had this sort of chronic <laughs> uh, malaise. Um, and so it's just like a natural time to reflect on like, okay, how am I doing? <laughs> How's it going so far? And I, I remember I was very conscious at the beginning of it when I sort of when I self-diagnosed and realized what what I had um, and that I was probably in for a long ordeal. I, I was very conscious that I wanted about wanting to apply the coping skills I had honed as an endurance athlete because I felt that well, first of all, they're all I have. <laughs> um, you know, they're really the only tools I've got, so they better work. Um, but I also believe in them and and. You know, one thing I've always done, even you know, in in good times and in bad, is tr is to um, um, to sort of hold myself accountable. Like you know, if I have a big goal, I like to put it out there publicly. Um, and you know, that way, if I fail, I fail publicly. But I feel like the pressure actually helps me. I'm so I'm sort of doing something similar here. It's kind of like you know, I, I've I've filled a lot of pages with my advice about how athletes should think. <laughs> and, you know, now it's time for me to put up or shut up. So yes, very much. I'm trying to practice what I preach. Right. And I think this whole scenario is just very fascinating for me to think about because, you know, Matt, you're, I'm going to blow a little smoke your way. You know, you're arguably the endurance space's most acclaimed author. You know, you share stories of elite athletes doing amazing things in just about every book you've written. And now you're in this situation where you have to model the mental fitness of, you know, what your book describes as mega achievers of astounding athletic comebacks. And so I'm just thinking, I'm curious, do you find that intimidating? Uh, what goes through your head when you compare yourself and the journey that 
is ahead of you to these mega achievers and realize, wow, you need to do what they've done, which I think is something very special. Um, I, I don't, I don't find it daunting to do that. Um, you know, just as an athlete, I always modeled my training, my nutrition, my equipment choices, everything after the best in the world, never believing for one second that doing so would make me one of the best in the world. So, you know, whatever intimidation I might feel about trying to emulate, you know, my superiors, like I, I, I got over that a long time ago. So for me, it's more to, for, for me, it's more inspiring when, because all it takes is one person to show just tremendous strength and poise in facing adversity to prove that it's possible. Um, and okay, you know, maybe that person's an extreme outlier and, you know, I'm, I'm not going to demonstrate quite as much poise in, in facing my ordeal. But to me, it's actually more comforting than daunting because without those examples, you have no way of knowing. Then, then, it's, then you have to be the first, <laughs> which I think is more daunting. <laughs> you know, I, I think we're both in this kind of interesting position where we've had a lot of exposure to world-class athletes and, and talk to them and just had interesting conversations about how they think about certain things. And you know, they're certainly an outlier in terms of their physical gifts. You know, they've certainly hit the genetic lottery when it comes to their ability to perform in an endurance capacity. But I've always been struck by how similar most elite athletes are mentally to everyone else. And, and they're dealing with struggles. And yeah, they might have a sports psychologist that they meet with regularly. And that seemingly gives them, you know, maybe some extra, you know, tools in the tool chest. But you know, I, I just think it's really interesting how we are much more similar than different from a psychological perspective. And so, you know, you not putting that on a pedestal, I think is, is quite helpful. And, uh, you know, when you're describing these epic comebacks, you know, it's like you said, you just need to see one person. And as soon as you see one person, you're like, well, you know, I, I'm never going to be able to run a 204 marathon, but I can come back from an injury. I can come back from being sick for a long time, right? It, seems, it makes it sound very realistic. And I want to talk a little bit about realism because that is a very big theme throughout this book. And it frankly surprised me a little bit. You, you took the book in a direction that I didn't expect it to go. And that was to my benefit because I didn't want to read something that I thought I was already going to know about. Uh, can we talk a little bit more about uh, ultra realists? You described these folks who can make these epic comebacks as ultra realists. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, so I am not a sports psychologist, but I have like a deep and abiding interest in the psychological dimension of endurance sports. So, you know, I think a lot about it and I'm a coach and you are as well. And any coach knows that, you know, coaching the mind is a huge part of the job, you know, wh whether you like it or not. Um, that's what you put a lot of, you know, your, your focus and energy into. Um, so, you know, I've been at it for a long time and I'm also in this unique position where like, yes, I'm, I'm a coach and an author, but I, you know, well, I'm a coach, but I'm also a journalist and a writer. So I've got you know, one foot in the, in the sort of like the general endurance athlete community. Like I, I coach almost exclusively non-professional athletes. And then I've got this other foot in the elite realm where I'm like sort of learning at the feet of the best in the world. Um, and, you know, you remarked, you remarked about how kind of similar, you know, the elites are 
to everyone else psychologically, psychologically, but there are also, there are also some characteristic differences. And the thing that I noticed over and over again was that um, the highest achievers, and it doesn't necessarily align with ability or, or performance, but the people who get the most out of their God-given ability, however much that is, they're the ones who fully face the reality of the, the sort of the bad situations they confront. And, and any, anytime, so, so, you know, my definition of my working definition of mental fitness in the book is the ability to make the best of a bad situation, just like a nice layman's colloquial, non-scientific, uh, definition of mental fitness. So, um, so the approach I took in the book was like, I, 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 I wanted to take these observations I had and turn them into something that was kind of programmatic. I think the reason I, I don't, I don't know. The reason I haven't gotten a ton out of a lot of the the sports psychology books that are out there is that they tend to focus on when they're trying to when they're trying to answer the same question, like what does it take to come back from adversity? They tend to focus on qualities, like what are the characteristics? Like is it you know toughness, determination, resilience, whatever? And I, I've always felt like, what do you what do you do with that? <laughs> I mean. Toughness, wonderful. Um, you know, to me, I, I, I jokingly say it's like telling someone they would be better at basketball if they were three inches taller. It's like, what do you do with that? So I, I wanted to look at what do people actually do? Like, you know, the people who pull off the, the great comebacks that we just never forget um, if we witness them or we've heard the story, like, what are they actually doing? And comebacks come in infinite varieties, but, but my observation is that underneath that sort of superficial uh, diversity, people are actually all doing the same thing, which is like when they, when they, when they succeed in, in making the best of a bad situation, they do so by fully accepting, embracing and addressing reality just as it is. And when people fail to make the best of a bad situation, they're tripping at one of those three hurdles. They're either failing to accept the reality, failing to embrace it or failing to address it. Yeah, that's a great little three-step process that I think helps athletes better conceptualize any type of adversity that they might be dealing with right now, whether it's a big injury, whether, you know, maybe they just took four months off or running and coming back and reclaiming their fitness seems like a daunting challenge. Can we dive into this three-step process a little bit more and talk a little bit more about you know, what does it mean to accept whatever adversity that you're dealing with right now? How do you embrace it? How do you address it? Yeah, it seems so simple. But as I say in the book, uh, well, as Thelonious Monk, the uh, jazz great said, simple ain't easy. Um, So yeah, this idea that when something goes wrong, I mean, the whole reason that not everyone is an ultra realist, and not everyone succeeds in making the best of every bad situation is that we have these basic human instincts that work against facing reality. So like, you know, these, these instincts exist for a reason. They're not there to screw things up for us, but they can screw things up for us when you're an athlete trying to achieve great things and and you encounter a bad situation. So with the acceptance piece, like let's say, you know, you're training for a race and something goes wrong, or you're in the middle of a race and something goes wrong. Every single living human who has that experience is going to go, shit. <laughs> like I, I like, Oh no. Right. Like, you know, your shoe comes untied, you know, halfway through a marathon or you, you know, develop a really, uh, like 
you know, worrisome niggle, you know, with, you know, three weeks out from a marathon or whatever it is, you have that, oh shit moment at, at first and you, you wish it hadn't happened. So that's completely human. What the ultra ultra realist does is they quickly pivot beyond that. They're like, whereas, whereas the, the instinct in us that always wants everything to go our way wants to make us like focus on what went wrong and wishing it hadn't happened or panicking, which is actually just another way of denying the reality or catastrophizing, which is like turning a, a what's actually a molehill into a mountain, you know, making it just you know, sort of like making it bigger than it is. Like all those ways are ways of like failing to accept the reality. Whereas if you're actually going to succeed in making the best of it, you have to accept it and just you know, say, you know, admit, I didn't want this to happen, but it did happen. So what am I going to do with it? When you say you need to embrace the reality, is is that substantially different than accepting the reality? Is that just not only saying, okay, this is happening to me, but then just fully acknowledging it and really realizing that this is now my new reality? Yeah, it is a distinct stage. I mean, these things aren't necessarily sequential, like when they play out in, in real world events, but you know, there is a sequence to it. Like you can't really embrace a reality you haven't accepted and, and accepting a reality is not a guarantee that you will embrace it. Um, so accepting it just means like almost like defining the problem, like recognizing and defining the problem that's acceptance. Embracing it is committing to making the best of the situation regardless, which is, that's another hurdle you got to get past because you, you, a lot of people, when they, they may accept the reality that, oh, well, you know, because uh, my training got derailed by illness or whatever, my, my original goal is out the window. Um, now, you could accept that fact, but fail to embrace it by becoming de- demoralized or apathetic. You could have a, like, a, I see this all the time with athletes. It's an all or nothing mentality. It's like, oh, if everything doesn't go my way, then what's the point? So that's a failure to embrace the reality. Embracing it is, you know what? Something bad happened. It means that, you know, maybe my original goal is out the window, but I'm still going to try to make the very best of it because actually that's the underlying goal regardless. I like that. Are there really productive ways to practice accepting, embracing and addressing our new realities? Uh, how do you, I guess what I'm asking is how do you do each effectively? You know, are there tried and true ways of kind of getting out of your own way and really being an ultra realist in this realm? Uh, for sure. I mean, you know, my approach actually is, is again, a little bit different than maybe like the, the standard approach. Like if you, if you, you know, saw a licensed sports psychologist that they might give, give you a slightly different approach, but because I'm a coach, the way I like to do it is, um, within the context of the normal problem solving process. So, I mean, the, you know, endurance athletes, endurance sports are not for the faint of heart. Like you're always, <laughs> it's never perfect. Like you're, you're always dealing with something. And anytime a problem arises, whether it's small from like just a random bad workout or a random missed workout to something pretty big, like a pandemic that the, you know, takes away all the races for uh, a bit, the better part of a year, whatever it is, like problems are going to come your way. You don't have to go looking for them and each. And so you want to solve the problems one by one for their own sake, but, but those are also opportunities to practice these skills. And for me, it's like, why make extra time to work on your fitness, uh, your mental fitness outside of the context of what you're doing already. So 
problems are almost always sig signaled by negative emotions. I, I tell athletes to treat negative emotions the same way you do pain. Pain never fails to get your attention. Like, you know, if like, if it's like a, you know, an unusual red flag type of pain that emerges, like you don't just like try to ignore it. You, 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 it gets your attention and then you recognize it as a problem. It's like, okay, what is this? What, what is this sensation signaling? Negative emotions are the same way. If you start to feel frustrated or demoralized or um, anxious or angry or, or fearful or any of these things, pause. Like you need to sort of like, instead of letting that emotion control your behavior, instead of sort of like living inside that emotion, the thing you need to practice is taking a step outside of it just as you would with pain and be like, what, why am I experiencing this emotion? What is it telling me? What is the problem that has given rise to that emotion? Um, and then, you know, step one is to, you're, all, you're already halfway to accepting it just by taking that orientation instead of like glossing over it or letting it rule you. Um, uh, so that's the approach I like to take. Just, you know, problems will come your way. They will be signaled by negative emotions. And that's your chance to put this machinery into operation. I find it so fascinating that you sort of talk about sports psychology and a lot of these different qualities and actions that you can take to improve your psychology from a training perspective. You know, you kind of don't separate the two and you're saying how you have to work on both at the same time. And that's something that I've discovered as a coach. And maybe this is maybe a, a coachism that you do have to work on both because separating them is you know, it's almost like separating the mind and the body, which is very difficult to do. You usually can't. There are problems with that. And as runners, if we're not training while we are working on some of these psychological skills, then there's you're never going to know how to apply those skills to your training when the time comes. So it's almost like a form of of applying what you're learning on almost a daily basis and really making sure that you know, it's being applied and you're really kind of absorbing those lessons as a runner. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I, I'm a pragmatist when it comes down to it. So I just, you know, I look for the straightest line <laughs> between point A and point B. And, um, you know, not to say that you can't work on your mental fitness outside the context of, of training. It, it's just not, it's not my main methodology. So I do talk about things like, um, you know, mindfulness, meditation, journaling, like stuff you can do. Um, even like, you know, there's, um, there's like training and in inhibitory control you can do outside the context of training. So that's like, um, finding little things you can do in the day to sort of, um, either defer gratification or to just em embrace the suck, like taking cold showers or like, you know, I, I talk about how in my strength workouts, I always do side planks because I hate side planks. Um, so yeah, there's, there's like, there's sort of ancillary tools you can use to develop mental fitness, but I really think that the, the meat of it really should be, uh, undertaken within the training context. Um, cause you know, a lot of these, a lot of these aptitudes are generalizable, but I mean, think of the cliche of like, you know, the, uh, the warrior, the, the heroic warrior soldier who shows all the, all the courage in the world on the battlefield, but they're a coward in love or, you know what I mean? It's like, you can be brave in one context and not so brave in another context and runners, they want to have a very high level of mental fitness when they're running. And, you know, so I, I'm not really a, a life coach or a self-help guru. I'm trying just to help you succeed as an athlete. So let's just like, let's just do that. <laughs> I like it. It's, 
seemingly simple, but simple ain't always easy, like you said. Now, one thing that I wanted to talk about was was journaling, and and you did bring it up just now because it does seem to me that when you are working on the way you think about things, you really just need to get your thoughts down and really think about your thinking, which is very meta. But I, I think journaling lends itself to that kind of an endeavor. It's a practice where you have to write down your thoughts. You can revisit your thoughts. You can really structure your thoughts. Uh, have you gotten involved with journaling in in your current comeback, or or do, have you found journaling to be, you know, one of those tried and true methods for? kind of like getting control of your thinking and and really learning some of these skills? Yeah, I mean, I have the advantage of like having a platform as a writer. Um, so, I mean, I spend a big chunk of every day writing. Um, and, you know, it's like a busman's holiday. I don't necessarily want to keep a diary outside of <laughs> all the writing I'm, I'm already doing. But like, so, but I can have it both ways. Like, you know, you know, my journaling, I mean, in a sense, this conversation we're having right now is journaling for me, because it's like, it's giving me a chance to talk through stuff that I'm experiencing. So um, I'm very fortunate, obviously, not not everyone is in that, that position, though, you know, with social media, we kind of are, aren't we? <laughs> Just put it <laughs> everyone can do, journal, sure. <laughs> yeah, do, do, do your journaling on Instagram. Uh, but you know, so one of the one of the one of the points I really try to drive home in the book is that, like, well, there's this great quote from the psychi- psychiatrist uh, Robert Trivers that I include as an uh, epigraph in one of the chapters, which is the human capacity for self-deception knows no bounds. Um, and you know, I see this as a coach. I see this as my it, with myself. Like I really try to train myself in it. Is that like like we are bullshitting ourselves constantly? Like as human beings and athletes, like we are trying to maintain this illusion of ourselves that is not the real us. And it's natural, but it's another one of those things that can get in the way of like, no matter how painful it is to accept a truth about yourself, like, you know, a flaw or a weakness or something you need to work on or whatever, it's painful. And that's why you resist it. But the path forward, you know, to becoming a better athlete or a better version of yourself is always through facing that truth head on. And journaling can be great for that. Um, Because it's just, you know, I find as a writer, like I've never really thought anything through until I've tried to write it out. You know, you you think you've got it all figured out in your head, and then you start to write it and you realize, oops, I made an assumption here. Oops, there's a blind spot I didn't notice. So, you know, I think journaling is a a fantastic tool uh, for that. Um, So yeah, I use it with some of the athletes. I mean, not not everyone's interested, just like not everyone's interested in, in meditating. But for those who who um, are open to it, it's a it's a fantastic tool for just being honest with yourself. Yeah, and I think it's a wonderful tool as well for sharpening your thinking. Because I know just my practice of writing so regularly about training and coaching and running and all the topics that that includes has really helped me become a better coach and I think a clearer thinker on all these topics because I've had to actually create a formula in my brain of how to think about these things. And I think that can be really helpful. Um, you did say something really interesting. I want to talk a little bit more about, which is like our capacity for self-deception knows no bounds or no limits. I think you said that last month in Boulder, probably two or three times. So really (laughs) (laughs) it stuck with me. Is that a double-edged sword? Because I I do feel like it can be both good and it can be both bad. You can delude yourself and and dig yourself into a hole, or 
you can convince yourself that you're not actually feeling so terrible in a race and and actually have a good performance or you can make yourself feel more confident than you probably deserve and maybe in a lot of situations that can actually be quite beneficial so how do you think about the dividing line between you know bullshitting yourself in a good way and doing it in a destructive way i mean i guess i i i, I think it's probably I want to say it's a semantic difference. And you know, I, basically, I, I want to hold the line on um, facing reality is always the right move. Um, but um, you know, to speak to the type of situation you're talking about, um, you know, like when you're you know, really going through a tough patch you know, in a race or something, and you need to, like, there's a chance to hold it together mentally, but you are at your limit. Like, you're really being tested in terms of, like, you know, your capacity to like not not have your mind let you down um and in those moments um yeah you might need to tell yourself something but i still think it always has to be true because you know if you know if it's not um it, whenever i whenever i am on this topic i think of a moment that occurred when i was running like the uh say like the 26 16 or 2018 Boston Marathon. It was the Boston Marathon anyway. And um, I was, uh, I was coming, I came over Heartbreak Hill and my legs were just absolutely trashed. Like my quads had just been tenderized. Anyone who's been there knows the feeling. Um, and so, you know, it was at this point, at that point, I'm, I'm like, boy, this is, this is looking iffy. You know, I've got, you know, six miles to go. Um, and I remember, you know, I just sort of assessed my, my whole, and one thing I learned through doing, you know, 50 other marathons and was that like, it's never all bad. Like your reality is always complex and nuanced. There's always more than one thing going on. And when you're really suffering, it's easy for all of your attention to be like soaked up by, you know, the one big awful thing that you're feeling. But, but I've learned that like, if you can find something else that, is positive that's also happening right then um it can be a lifeline so it has to be a true thing at least it doesn't work for me unless it's not a true thing so in, in that moment i started noticing you know what actually energy wise i'm fine like i have plenty of energy to get to the finish line i just don't know if my legs can hold up so i just started telling myself like you know like you you have you have what it takes to get there you you, know, you just need to you, know, you just need to let the engine carry the chassis the rest of the way. And I just, I put that on a loop. Um, so I was, yeah, I was like, I was distracting myself from a very true thing that was scary and negative, but I was distracting myself with something that was also true. Um, because it, for me, it wouldn't have worked any other way. Yeah. That might be a more effective strategy to actually, to, uh, bring to you the forefront of your mind something that's going very well or something that is more positive because then, you know, you're not bullshitting yourself. You're actually telling yourself the truth. And that truth is something that could really hurt, help you. And, and I think that that's great. I mean, you're being your own cheerleader. You're kind of focusing on the good. You're finding a silver lining. And, and I think that positive outlook is absolutely needed in in an endurance race where <laughs> you need all the positivity you can get because those little negativity demons are always right around the corner whispering things in your ear and that's super important yeah psychologists call that reframing and I, I like that term because it gets it gets to the idea that you're actually not trying to change the picture you're trying to change your angle on the picture because the picture is the picture reality is reality 
but you can, there's 360 degrees surrounding that reality and you can sort of choose your location um, and, 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 and choose a specific location that gives you the best chance of, of success. I think the next time I'm running a workout or I'm running a race where things are just, you know, painful and I'm enduring, then that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask myself, well, what's going well right now that I can focus on? You know, what, what's the positive silver lining right now? That's, that's, I think a super tangible, actionable, productive thing to do when times are getting tough and you need all the little tools in your tool chest that can help you. Uh, Matt, I'm curious if there are any ways in which, you know, you were saying how we're always kind of deceiving ourselves. How do we lie to ourselves or deceive ourselves about our own realities or capabilities that that make these comebacks more difficult? Are there kind of a pattern of typical, you know, deceptions or lies that most people tell themselves? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, just like, you know, e- ego protection is is the number one where like, like there's something that's true about you that you don't want to recognize as true. And so you create a false narrative around it to protect yourself from, from seeing that. And it it doesn't necessarily have to be anything, um, you know, that would get you imprisoned. (laughs) (laughs) It can be something very small, like, um, like, so like people will lie to themselves about how motivated they are. You know, and like instead of just um, copping to like, you know what, I mailed it in today because I wasn't motivated. They'll come up with some other excuse that protects them from having to see, you know, because it's threatening. Like, I'm wait a minute, I'm passionate about running. Like, I love running, and, and you know, instead of just admitting it's human to have blah days or meh patches, um, you know, just kind of like creating some kind of illusion that protects them from seeing that. Um, um, yeah, I mean, uh, you, you know, like I, I give the example in the book because I mean, there's so much variety, it's almost paralyzing. Like, because that's that's what's so sneaky about it too is that like, like it, it can disguise itself, the self deception in so many different ways. But I, I give the example in in the book, I think I do anyway, of a runner I coached who um, who said, um, oh, you know, she 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 tended to over race. She tended to race too often, which a lot of age groupers do. And I was trying to get her to stop doing that. And, and she came up with all these reasons like she, that she had to race as often as she does. Like, well, you know, if I go too long between races, I, I get, I tend to get overtrained or like, I really need to race every now and then to know where my fitness is. Cause no workout just tells it like, and all this stuff was just excuses. And the, and the real reason she raced a lot was because she loved it, <laughs> you know, and the thing she didn't want to admit was that she knew that it was harming her performance, but she wanted to do it anyway. And so, you know, this is just a specific example, but I think it's helpful to show what the process looks like is that all I wanted, like there, for me, like I try to, I, I take pains with athletes to let them know there's no, that nothing is unthinkable. Nothing is, nothing that's true can't be shared. It's all Okay. So like, all I want is just for that clear eyed look at the reality of the situation. It's like, don't try to convince yourself that you're getting away with racing too often. Nobody gets away with it. So you're paying a price, but you might, because you love to race often, like you might want to do it anyway. So let's make that decision with absolute 2020 clarity and like 
to me, like that, that's the process working. It's like, just like, it's okay to just admit it. Like, you know, she didn't, she, you know, cause she was also very competitive. So she didn't want to like say I'm okay with racing at 92%. Um, so yeah, that's a hyper-specific example, but it sort of speaks to the general. Well, I like it. it it's such a hard conversation and you know, you're really proving to me the value of having a coach, someone who can really, you know, maybe call you on your BS a little bit and and bring the truth to the forefront. What about for those runners who who don't have a coach? These conversations seem very difficult to have if you're just having them with yourself in your head. Is is this where journaling comes in? Is this where having like a, a club or a group of friends that you go running with where you can really just talk through stuff really helps how do runners be more honest with themselves when they may not even know that they're being dishonest with themselves. Yeah. Journaling can, can help with that. Um, also, you know, actually peer peers can help with that. Like just having like confidants, like especially as someone else who knows running, uh, to talk things through with who, you know, can call BS on you. Um, but also, you know, your own training log, you know, what's, you know, some people call them training journals. Like you can use your log for that purpose as well. Um, in the book, I also give the example of uh, an example from Bill Rogers. Um, from he, you know, he 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 kept he kept famous, you know, publicly available training dollar diaries from his peak years. Um, I've read them; they're great. Yeah, they are great. Um, but you know, yeah, I've I've yeah, I've studied them through, and I actually when I was writing the book, I emailed bill um about his 1975 training log and asked him like because you know there, i saw hints in in the comments he would give um that he would really sort of take himself to task for things and he would he would call himself out um and there, yeah there's a great example in in one of his um i think it actually might have been 74 did he win in 75? Did he win Boston? I'm going to have to look that one up, Matt. I think so. <laughs> anyway, it was like, it was the last year when he was still working like as a, like a nurse's aide. And there's, there's this entry in this journal where like he has a terrible race and you, you, you know, we've all been there. He's just, he's catastrophizing a little bit, just like, you know, I'm feeling terrible. I perform terrible. And this is just going to keep happening until I admit that I'm trying to do too much. Um, and I'm just, I've just been fooling myself. And you know, he emailed me back and said, yeah, that's exactly what I was doing there. And he actually gave me another example from, I think, the following year when, when he won. But it's just like, yeah, it, and that's the thing, like, because these instincts are are strong, they don't give up easily. So so that's why it, it helps to do these things routinely or programmatically, that it just gives you time to get in the habit of letting things like bubble up to the surface. Because, you know, it's funny, like it, not a day goes by pretty much now when I don't have some sort of, when I don't have this sort of like an awakening to something I've been fooling myself about. And then you keep thinking like when you have one of those moments, like you can, you give yourself a pat on the back. Oh, I was kidding myself about this. And now I'm not kidding myself about this. But then even in the moment you say that, you're still kidding yourself about something else. <laughs> and you're you're going to wake up to that tomorrow. So it just, it never ends. So it just <laughs> it's a vicious cycle. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think the training log can be a really valuable tool in, in that way. And, you know, I think a lot of folks might be allergic to the term journaling. I know that for me, that sort of rubs me the wrong way. It's a little bit woo woo for me. I'm much more practical and pragmatic. I don't, I've never meditated or kept a journal, but I've kept a training log. And I feel like most of my running is a form of meditation because I don't 
really listen to podcasts or or music when I go running. And so I feel like you can get some of the benefits of of these things without actually journaling or doing meditation. Uh, I'm just curious if you're going to do this kind of work in your training log, are there specific questions that might be really helpful to ask yourself that might prompt some of these honest conversations? Because I'm sure a lot of runners don't even know, you know, you don't know what you don't know, right? So you might not even know what you're lying to yourself about or what you're kidding yourself on. So what are some good questions that might prompt some of these thoughts? Again, I go back to the idea of focusing on what's wrong. (laughs) It it sounds like a a negative, but you know, with with the athletes I coach, you know, I, I use the training peaks platform and, you know, they do their workouts. I assign they upload them. I get a notification. I go take a look at their workout. And very, very often, you know, when obviously at most times, most workouts basically go according to plan. And, and in those cases, I will do little more than acknowledge that I've, you know, to, so the athlete knows, Hey, I took a look at this. Looks like it went fine or whatever. But I, the only time I really invest like a lot of time and energy, like in analyzing a workout is when it goes poorly <laughs> or when it didn't go at all. So it's like, I mean, that's, you know, that's what good coaches do. Like you're pretty hands off until and unless you're needed and you're needed when a problem arises. So if you're self-coached, that's basically the same orientation uh, you need to have. It's like, so you know, if, if, if you complete a workout and it was less than perfect, probably that's going to be pretty close to top of mind anyway, just like the, the part that you wish had gone better or where you goofed up or something. And so I would really use the space mainly to, to focus on that, just analyze. Again, it sounds negative, but it's just not. It's, it's just, it's what you do. It's like, you know, that's, especially at the elite level of all sports, like, you know what you're doing well, right? And like, you're just, you're trying to go from really, really good to the best in the world. And so, yeah, you're going to focus on what what the missing pieces are. So um, by all means, if you do something awesome, you can go ahead and uh, give yourself a pat on the back on the back in your journal as well. But really using that space um, to just sort of like define the problem, it's just like, oh man, I went out, I I went out a little hot on that first interval and I paid for it later and I keep doing this. and then, then that can be like an opening for it's like, well, why do I keep doing this? Right. It's like, cause it, it's very, very simple conceptually to stop doing that. And so there must be a reason that you like, even when you go into it with a conscious intention to stop making that mistake, why do you keep doing it? And there might be some sort of um, fear or psychological inertia. Um, you know, maybe you don't really believe in your bones that, um, um, that the sort of holding back and, and pacing yourself, uh, in a different way could, could work out for the best or whatever it is. So, um, yeah, that's the approach. I, I, I um, and you can also do a, the similar, similar tools called decision tracking, which is also used in like tennis and a lot of other technical sports where you just, you look at like the, the key decisions you made, um, in a training session and just, um, uh, basically assess, evaluate them. It's like, yeah. And, and, and that, and that, that what with that tool, you can focus a little bit more on the positive and it can be just as productive. So when you, when you take a moment to reflect on decisions that you made that were good, it, it increases the odds that you repeat them next time. And then if you take yourself the task for bad decisions, it increases the odds that you won't repeat them. 
Yeah, I actually really like focusing on the problems or the mistakes or the errors that you might be making in workouts and training because then you can really dissect them and and figure out, you know, is this a race strategy problem? Is this a mental fitness problem? You know, by identifying the problem, then, you know, you can actually know how to potentially solve it. I, I think it very much we should sort of treat some of these mental fitness uh problems very similar to injuries. You know, you don't know how to treat an injury unless you know what injury that you have and very similar to your, any kind of mental issues that you might be having with, you know, your psychological skill set. If you don't know what kind of problem you're experiencing, it's going to be really hard to overcome that problem. So I'm a big fan of focusing on the negative. I think that's uh, really a productive way of going about things. Uh, but that lends me to think, Matt, with your current comeback right now, there really aren't any problems that you're you're kind of dealing with, except like this, just being patient and and hoping that your body will tolerate running. So I'm curious how you're applying some of this work to your comeback right now, because it does seem like it's it's a very different and difficult situation that you're in. Well, you know, in in my book, I go out of my way to give examples. It's actually it, it's it's. In a way, it's tough reading at moments because, like, some of the examples I include in the book are, you know, for for like tragic or traumatic events, like you know things like you know people suffering from major depression, like you know the ultra runner Rob Carr, who I profile in the book, or um, uh, Jamie Whitmore, the former champion champion off road triathlete who just form, uh, suffered a devastating form of cancer and just had you know body parts removed. Uh, um, I went out of my way to include examples like that because I wanted to show that like all of this stuff applies, even if there's not much you can do about the situation, like, it, like you can still make the best of a situation, even when there's very, very little you can do to actually alter the reality outside yourself, because then your opportunity is to alter your mindset, you know, sort of to find, um, the best possible way to adapt to a reality that you can do very little about. Um, so that's where I, I find myself now. I mean, there, there's definitely stuff I can do. You know, I can seek help from medical professionals and I can network with other long haulers to, you know, get information and um, just, you know, have a shoulder to cry on or whatever. But most of it is just, it, there's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot I can't control. And so I'm, I'm, I've been focusing most of my energy on, okay, what if tomorrow is no better than today? And what if the day after that is no better than tomorrow? Like, can I still become, can my, well, can my overall well-being in, increase, you know, even, even if nothing changes? Um, and I, I, I know that's possible. Um, and, but it's, it's easier said than done, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, you're in a situation that I think you know, maybe one of the reasons why I asked you that question is because I struggle with it and I don't know the right answer to it because I think I'm someone who wants to be in control. I like to know what injury I have so that I can go see a physical therapist or get it treated and, and take the steps I need to take to then get back out on the road. The steps that you need to take to get back out on the road are unclear. You don't know what those steps are. And, and I think that is so confusing and frustrating and, and, you know, it kind of strips that control from you. And at least from my vantage point, that might be one of the more frustrating aspects of, of this whole situation for you. Yeah. But at the very least you can recognize the reality of that, 
you, you know, um, that, um, you, you know, to just be very clear about where the line is between what you can control and what you can't. And to remind yourself as often as you need to be reminded that it's a complete waste of time and energy to worry about things you can't control. I mean, it's just, it's just not productive. And, and you see that, you know, the champions don't do that. There are just some awesome examples I give in the book of, you know, athletes who, um, who just pivot so quickly from that, oh shit moment to it's like, oh, well, you know, life gave me lemons. Let's see if I can t- turn these into lemonade. And again, it's, it's easier said than done, but you see a full spectrum of people who, you know, cope very, very poorly. You know, I know long haulers who, you know, maybe they got sick the same day I did and they still keep thinking about like, what if I hadn't taken that trip to Atlanta where I got COVID and like, they're still there. You know, it's like, what good is <laughs> that doing you? Or just like, you know, spending hours every day, like absorbing information about long COVID and like, is there a cure coming? Or like, that also is like, you know, when it comes, you'll hear about it. Trust me. <laughs> like, it, you know, it, in the meantime, just focus on like, you know, being as happy and healthy as you can now, because that you do have some control over. Man, I have always really respected your practical way of thinking about things, not just training, but your mentality, your psychology. And uh, I really respect that about you. And and just want to thank you for coming on and, and sharing about your struggles and and how you're kind of putting your own research and knowledge to good use. Because uh, it's not certainly not easy, like you said, but I think you're doing a hell of a job. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate the platform. Uh, this is, yeah, like I said, it's uh, therapy for me in, in a way. And I hope it's uh, it's useful to people listening as well. I'm sure it is. Yeah. Well, the book is The Comeback Quotient. You are prescient enough to have Molly Seidel on the cover of it after yes. her, <laughs> her her recent Olympic moment. So that is just, uh, I think, a, a good sign for the book. And so I hope folks really check it out. And Matt Fitzgerald, if folks don't know where to find you, I don't think they're searching hard enough. There's an actor named Matt Fitzgerald who might lead you down the wrong path if you Google that name. Oh, is there? I didn't know that. Well, I, I can't tell you how many times people have emailed me. It's like, look, I read your book and I got some things to say. And I'm like, I think you're talking to the wrong Fitzgerald here. <laughs> well, thanks again, Matt. I really appreciate your time. And I hope things keep going well for you, keep improving. And hopefully one day soon we can go for a run together. All right. I'm counting on it. That's our show with award-winning sports journalist, coach, nutritionist, and runner Matt Fitzgerald. You can pick up The Comeback Quotient or most any of his books at your local bookstore or on Amazon. And please don't miss our survey for next year's running retreat. I want to make this an unforgettable, unique experience, and I need your help. Go to strengthrunning.com retreat to answer just a couple questions. And a big thanks to our sponsor, Elemental Labs, for their support. If you have a high sweat rate, or if you're like me and you have very salty sweat, it's important to dial in your hydration. Elemental Labs is offering a free sample pack with four flavors and eight separate electrolyte packets at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. You only have to pay for shipping, which is just five bucks here in the U.S. Elemental Labs makes electrolytes for athletes and low-carb folks with no sugar, no artificial ingredients or colors. I'm particularly partial to the citrus flavor 
which I honestly can't get enough of. And my second favorite is the watermelon flavor, which I also just can't get enough of. It's tasty, it's delicious, and it's something that I just love when I'm doing any running more than about 45 to 60 minutes. And if you're an athlete who's running maybe five or more days per week, training for longer events, or outside in the heat, an electrolyte replacement makes a lot of sense. And I'm very encouraged by the fact that Navy SEAL teams, Olympic teams, and a lot of pro athletes are now using elemental electrolyte supplements to improve their performance. Check them out at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. You can try their sample pack and get your hydration optimized for the upcoming fall season. And they also have a new flavor, watermelon salt, which, like I mentioned, is my number two flavor ever. It's absolutely delicious and hits the spot after a big run. Now, we're also supported by Inside Tracker, and they want to help you do what you love for life. They want to help you be a successful, healthy runner for decades. They were founded back in 2009 by aging, genetics, and biometric scientists to help you analyze your body's data and get a firm idea of how well you're responding to training. Understanding your body's biomarkers, from stress hormones to testosterone, even to vitamin D, can help you figure out if you're overtraining, undertraining, or if you're optimally training. But the best part is that they actually give you personalized optimal ranges for each of those biomarkers that they test for. And if any of those markers are outside of your optimal ranges, they're going to give you a whole host of ways to improve those markers through diet, lifestyle, or exercise changes. I've gotten two ultimate tests from them, and I'm awaiting my results from my third test. And for a limited time, you can get 25% off any test that they offer at insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. This is kind of a big deal because these tests are admittedly not very cheap. They test for a lot of different things. And so if you want to stack the odds in your favor and give yourself every advantage with a personalized blood test, go to insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning and you'll save 25% off today. All right, that's our show, friends. Don't forget to take our survey for next year's potential retreat at strengthrunning.com slash retreat. Thank you so much for subscribing to this podcast and being part of the Strength Running community. We'll be in touch. 